Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. He had a dream 50 years ago to inspire people to think about the natural world around them. We talked to Dr. Howard Mickey Weiss, the founder of Project Oceanology, on his legacy and what comes next. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith, and happy Thanksgiving to you all. The Project Oceanology organization has now been going for 50 years and has inspired thousands of young people and adults in the field of science and the natural world. Based at Avery Point in Groton, it was the creation of one man, Dr. Howard Mickey Weiss, who started the organization from his then-classroom and turned it into what it is today. A remarkable non-profit, unique in what it does, providing more than 20,000 students and adults annually with opportunities to learn about the oceans around us through first-hand exploration and experiences. I caught up recently with Mickey and Andrew Ely, the new executive director of Project Oceanology, to find out more. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Mickey, I want to turn to you first. 50 years. You started this, we'll just quickly do the math for people, 1972 is when this started. Did you ever think 50 years later... It would still be around? You'd still be here? It, was, it would be so successful? I really didn't. We had a grant that started Project Oceanology that was designed to phase out as the local support increased. And that was to take place over a four-year period. And I was not sure we were going to get through the four-year period where we transitioned from 100% state-funded to 100% locally funded. But in fact, the local folks, the local schools, the local teachers really stepped to the plate. And as the state funding phased out, they did pick it up. And over the years, that's been the story of Project Oceanology. It's a story of cooperation and local support. And that's kept us going. Tell us a little bit about the background. You are a Harvard grad. I mean, what got you interested in all of this? I mean, you clearly have a passion for this, because you have to have a passion to start something like this as well. I actually a graduate of the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and I majored in, or uh, got my master's degree in science education. And there, I learned from the other people that were also teaching and and attending that school that the best approach to science education was learn by doing. And that's what you remember, and that's what creates the excitement and the learning. So that was a philosophy of science education that today still holds true. All the research shows that students learn best when they are actually investigating the environment or the phenomena that they're studying, as opposed to just reading about it in a book or hearing a professor lecture about it. So that was my first real hook into science education. I also, while I was doing this Harvard master's program, I took courses in marine ecology from a very well-known marine ecologist, and he brought us to Woods Hole and along the coast of Massachusetts. And I'd always been a water rat as a kid, but never thought 
that I could make a living doing that. I actually never even heard of oceanography, really, till I got into that graduate program. And I said, wow, this is what I really want to do. So Project Ocean, I combined both my love of the ocean and excitement about doing science, along with the notion that the best way to teach kids about that was to involve them in investigations. I then went on to get my PhD in marine biology from here at University of Connecticut and did quite a bit of research on lobsters, and I continue today to work on other crabs and other crustaceans. So it does combine my interest in science and in science education and seeing how enthusiastic kids can be. When you put kids on the boat and pull in a net, the excitement is just, even the the most blasé kid, the the very cool high school kid who comes on board the boat, who is, you know, not going to be excited about anything if he can help it. Next thing you know, he's pushing the other kids away from the, the tank and going for the critters. I just want to get back to a comment you made a few moments ago. You said you were a water rat when you were younger. I mean, was there anything like this around back then? I mean, because obviously, as we said, you had a passion. You said you had a passion. but Was there anything like this around at all? No, actually, we were one of two programs. There's one on the West Coast and us for uh, when I first began. And yeah, I grew up on the Hudson River in Poughkeepsie, spent a lot of time on the river. I was a lifeguard, learned how to scuba dive from a friend, which is not the right way to learn how to scuba dive. But uh, we we dove in a lot of uh, lakes and so on around Poughkeepsie. So I've always loved the water. And as I said before, I I really didn't realize that there was a career opportunity in this area. I went to the University of Rochester for my undergraduate program, and I was in physics. And they didn't have anything in the environment then at the University of Rochester. Now they do, and they do stuff on the Great Lakes. But when I was there, all of the science was kind of lab science. And I've always enjoyed being out in the environment and letting, letting nature teach us. Do you consider yourself a trailblazer? Because like you said, no, there wasn't anything like this around. And it took somebody like you to actually say, this is what needs to happen. This is how kids need to learn. Yeah, I think I probably was a trailblazer, I guess you would say. I started Project Oceanology at the time of the first Earth Day. And so we were all trailblazers back then. I think that everybody was now becoming aware of our human impact on the environment. We were all reading Rachel Carson and and concerned about what human activity was doing to our environment, to the oceans. And so I would say that there were a bunch of us on that trail, blazing that trail. And of course, you know, 50 years later, still going strong, still showing children, educating children about the natural world around us, and in particular, obviously, our oceans. What things would you say have changed for you? What have been some of the biggest changes, some of the things that have really made you either concerned about our environment or have made you say, wow? Well, from the perspective of 50 years, a lot of great things have happened. So since Earth Day, we've seen here in Connecticut where, for example, there was in Stonington, there was a factory that was dyeing fabric and they would just release the dyes out into the salt marshes. And so we had salt marshes turning blue one day and green another day, depending on what fabric they were dyeing. And on the Naugatuck, we had brass plating companies that were putting copper into the water, and the shellfish out in Long Island Sound were actually some of the oysters I remember seeing. I actually have some pictures of them were turning green from the bioconcentration of the, of the copper that had been accumulating in their tissues. Oil was being spilled in Long Island Sound from tankers going down the Sound because they were allowed to empty their ballast water right here in the Sound. And I remember as a kid coming to Long Island Sound 
from Poughkeepsie with my parents. And one of my strongest memories is having to clean the tar off my feet when we got off the beach because the beaches were covered with oil. So there's been a lot of really great things that have happened in Long Island Sound uh, since then. None of those things I just mentioned happen anymore. It's taken a long time for that to happen. So I guess what you have to do is be patient. And I certainly would like to see things happen right away to be improved. But ultimately, you can't give up. You have to just keep plugging away. And there's a lot more that has to be done in Long Island Sound. So we're not out of the woods yet. There are things like microplastics that are going into the water and other new contaminants like hormones that are getting into the water. So although we've solved a lot of the problems of Long Island Sound, there's more to be solved. And that's where I hope these kids that are going out on the boat today and, and from Project O learning about this are going to be the problem solvers of the future and deal with that. The biggie, of course, is climate change. Long Island Sound right now has been warming at a very rapid rate. And many of the critters that we used to catch in the net back in the 70s and 80s, including lobsters, are no longer really found in Long Island Sound. They've all had to move north where the water is colder because Long Island Sound's been warming up. Lobsters no longer can thrive in Long Long Island Sound, so now they're pretty much restricted to north of Cape Cod. We've seen southern species move into Long Island Sound, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's still a lot of marine life in Long Island Sound, but there's been a shift from colder water species to warmer water. And as you say, I mean, it's not always a bad thing, but sometimes it can be because they can be rather predatory against, you know, some of the native stuff as well. So, I mean, there is that sort of like that, that fine balance, isn't there? Right. And actually, the biggest impact is on people because the lobstermen who made a living, it was a million dollar, multi million dollar industry in Connecticut. They can't do that anymore. They had to shift into other fisheries or move to Maine. So, yes, there's a, definitely an impact within the Benthic communities having new species here. But in a way, the economic disruption has been the greatest. And That's one of the issues of climate change, for example. The other big one in Long Island Sound is sea level rise because we're going to see communities underwater that uh, now maybe once in a while super high tide or a storm event get underwater. They're going to be more and more underwater. And so the economic disruption is, is huge. So it's not just the ecology that's being impacted. People are being impacted. Andrew, I want to bring you in. Andrew Ely, who's the uh, executive director, the new executive director, relatively new one, of Project Oceanology. What got you interested in this? You are a former member, or uh, you worked here for, for the Coast Guard for many, many years in various departments, an instructor, and obviously all the other good things that the Coast Guard does. Why did you want to get involved in Project Oceanology? From a very early age, I had an interest in the water too. Like Mickey, I grew up on the Hudson River, a little further north, up near Saratoga Springs in a town called South Coast Falls. And I spent much of my youth canoeing and swimming and recreating on the river and, and had an interest in that. And I went off to the University of Rhode Island to study marine affairs, focused on fisheries conservation and fisheries management. And one thing led to another that got me into the Coast Guard, doing some of that fisheries work as, and many other things, as you noted. I found a passion for instructing and education, so I took my college experiences with my Coast Guard experiences, and I saw this opportunity to, to do something to give back in a different way. You know, I spent 28 years on active duty giving back to the community in many ways and to the United States. And I saw a chance to, to do that through education here at Project O. In the short period of time that you've been here, Andrew, I mean, what, have, what struck you the most about this project, apart from its longevity, 50 years, and let's hope many, many more years, obviously, into the future as well? 
One of the things that I think is really unique about this project is is truly the impact it has. You know, Mickey was describing the way that hands-on, minds-on science matters for children and matters for adults, for that matter, that, that come to our programs. And I see that here in this community all the time. I have children who have been to Project O. My wife came here to Project O. I meet people in the community. Let's say after work, I'm going into the store and I have a Project O shirt on. People will stop me just to tell me about the experiences that they had or their children had or their grandchildren had here. I've met folks who have developed their own careers based on what they started doing here years ago. So I know that the impact is real. I see it. I see it in kids firsthand when I'm on the boats, and and I just think that's a a great thing. So if we can continue to provide that, we should. I mean, one of the things as well that people may not be aware, apart from the amazing educational programs that are here at Project Oceanology, is that, of course, you have very high-level research that goes on here as well. How important, Andrew, is, is that as part of the overall, you know, Project O? Well, I think that's important in many ways. One of the, the first ways I want to point out is that we actually do citizen science here where our students and our participants gather and record data that we save and, and share. We have a Project Oceanology data set that goes back for our history, and it's fascinating to look back over time and realize that Project Oceanology has been contributing to data on local marine species and on the quality of the environment and we continue to do so. And I think that's uh, an important contribution to science and to show our students you can be a part of science in that way by gathering data that's used by others. Mickey, turning back to you, I mean, was research also a big thing for you when you were to, like, considering and creating Project Oceanology? We've talked about your own background and your, your science and your educational background, but was research also at the back of your mind when you created this 50 years ago? I think the important thing for me was to get science teachers actually experienced in doing science. So many people who are trained to be science teachers are the model they have is the professor up in the front of the room lecturing or the textbook. And surprisingly, many people who teach science have never done science. And so many of the programs we've had here at the project, and particularly the ones that I've kind of emphasized in terms of my own direct involvement, has been to teach teachers, involve them in doing science. We've had a number of grants from the National Science Foundation to involve teachers in in doing research. And by doing research, I mean that they actually design studies and design experiments, design field work, and collect the data analyze the data, and actually present that at scientific conferences. I've had many, many teachers present at conferences up and down New England. The work that they've done on, for example, the Thames River we had, the Thames River estuary has a problem with very low oxygen levels. And we had groups of teachers for a number of years working on what was causing that hypoxia, the low oxygen levels. We had a group of teachers in Boston Harbor sampling bottom sediments and marine life there to try to understand why, for example, some of the fishes there had lesions or the lobsters had lesions. Uh, so this was a chance for science teachers to do science. So that part, that's the part of, I think, research that we, we primarily emphasize. Now, I've carried out my own research and published a number of papers. I had the great opportunity to have a Fulbright back in 97, 98 and work in Mexico for about 10 years after that. In the winter times when things were slow here, I was doing research on spiny lobsters and collaborating with Mexican lobster biologists at the National University of Mexico. And more recently, I've been working on 
a study of the blue crab population here in Long Island Sound, trying to understand why it fluctuates so dramatically each year. So there's some research that I've been involved in personally, but to me the most important thing that I've done in terms of research is involving the science teachers who now go back to the school and they know what science is all about. It's not just textbooks and lecturing. It's actually doing science, making observations, collecting data, and hopefully they're transmitting that to their students. Now, apparently, and according to your website, more than 20,000 students and adults annually get opportunities to learn about the ocean firsthand through exploration and experiences here at Project O, as it's uh, obviously I've now found out is how it's referred to. Mickey, give us a sense of what does it mean to you to see the smiles on those kids' faces and, you know, the adults as well? Because over the years... You've made a difference in a lot of people's lives. Well, I think Andrew said it very well. You mentioned that you're, you work at Project O, and inevitably somebody will say, I remember going down there when I was in seventh grade and, you know, handling the fish. I even had a person just recently say to me, oh, I remember going down to Project O, and, and I love the mud. And now we don't usually get that as their favorite. It's usually the critters. A couple of weeks ago, I had a medical procedure, and the, the nurse they asked me where I worked, and I said, Project O. Oh, she says, my daughter went to Project O for like seven consecutive summers, and she's now doing her Ph.D., just finished her Ph.D. at Scripps Institute in Oceanography out in the West Coast. She's working for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Colorado. Inevitably, you mentioned Project O around here, and that's the kind of memory. And as I say, it's an experience that people remember, and so that's very gratifying. Before we started recording this, you said it was all about the young people. You're an incredibly modest man for what it is that you have created here. So I'm going to put that question to you again. What does it mean to you personally to know that you have educated so many people? And in that last example you've just given, clearly that young lady went on because she was so influenced by what she saw and experienced at Project O that she's gone into that career so like field herself. What does, how does that feel? It, it, it must be incredible to you to know that you are making such an effect on people's lives. Well, I, I'm flattered that you call me a trailblazer and, and such, but the fact of the matter is that the success of Project Oceanology is due to so many people here. The teachers who bring the kids here, the administrators who have supported us in their budget, the, the local folks who have donated their money to keep Project O going. So, you know, I, I think that perhaps I've been the catalyst for some of that. But really, that's what ha- has made Project O so successful. And it's been a real collaborative effort. Andrew? What's it like working with this very humble gentleman who sat next to you? And also, as I say, you know, knowing that he, and we're going to use the word again, whether he likes it or not, trailblazed 50 years ago, along with others, to create this incredible, ongoing and sustainable, hopefully very sustainable project. Well, during the, the months that I've been here, it's been a pleasure to, to get to know Mickey and to have him sort of help explain to me some of the, the history and see what he did create. You know, I do think we should acknowledge that, yes, there is a very important component here of teamwork, right? Mickey noted several groups, the schools, the administrators, the community, the volunteers, corporations, folks that have given us state and federal grants, for example. We wouldn't be here without any of those things, right? All those things together matter. I'm just going to intercede here. Got to mention the staff. We've had great instructors here, captains for this gala that's coming up. The young man that I hired 
50 years ago, is no longer a young man, nor am I. And he's coming down from Maine. Walter Barnard was our captain from 1973 until in the mid-2000s. So he dedicated, always made the trip safe for the kids. The instructors always were conveying their enthusiasm and their knowledge. We've had a great staff here at Project Doll. That is a that is a key part of the team. You know, the staff they really care about what they do, and you have to, to to engage in this way. You know, in any given day, an educator here might start out with let's say an elementary school class for a two and a half hour trip, and in the afternoon be out with a high school class doing a different trip. They might have an assignment in the evening or a summer camp program. You know, our teachers work year round. Our entire staff does, and that's that is definitely an integral part of our success is is the time and patience and care they put into developing the lessons and delivering them. When you go into a, one of our courses and you watch what our teachers do, they put kids into the, the mindset of what they are that day, scientists, oceanographers, engineers, and get them focused on doing that work. And you can see the excitement that comes from that. So my final question to both of you is quite simply this. It's lasted 50 years. What do you hope for the next 50 years for Project O? Well, I would say that's Andrew's. The ball is in Andrew's uh, court right now. Fair enough, Mickey. Fair <laughs> enough. The first thing I hope is that we never lose sight of that hands-on, minds-on experience that we provide. Being able to have children out on the water, on the shoreline, and then come back and bring that work maybe into a lab and interpret it and understand it, that is that is key to the success of this program and to the lasting memories and, and learning that happens here. So we are very focused on remaining central and in, in having those elements. You know, also, as Mickey indicated, there are, are new challenges for Long Island Sound, like microplastics and microfiber, and how do we tie those things into our lessons or looking at water quality and the impacts of human behavior on that water quality, making sure kids not only understand it, but have tools to address it. Right? So we spend a lot of time educating children of all backgrounds, you know, all economic backgrounds. And I am really thinking about how can I not only provide you an education, but provide you the tools to make a difference, right? After you have that education, what can I have you leave here with to to do something about that? It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Mickey, thank you for creating, obviously, Project O. Andrew, thank you for taking on the mantle as obviously the new executive director and making sure that this project will continue to survive and uh, help educate the scientists, the student scientists uh, of tomorrow, but also adults, but also teaching us a very valuable lesson about our natural world to you both. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. And you can find out more about Project O by visiting their website at (laughs) oceanology.org. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Got deer problems? Let us help. With Green Valley Tree LLC's Deer Preventive Spray, guaranteed to keep deer away from your precious plants, bushes, and trees for up to six months. With cold weather on its way, deer will be looking for sources of food. Don't let your front and backyards become their pantry. Call. 
Green Valley Tree today at 860-234-4041 or visit us at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. The Chamber of Commerce of Eastern Connecticut presented their 13th annual social service recognition breakfast and awards recently. Organizations from large hospital systems to small nonprofits attended the event. Keynote speaker was Trisha Cunningham, executive director of Always Home, a nonprofit who worked towards preventing family homelessness. Cunningham said it's been a tough few years for everyone in the sector, and she urged everyone to look back and reflect on their achievements. I regularly reflect on the successes I have enjoyed over the years and most recently over this past year with Always Home, and it gives me purpose to move forward. I'd ask you to reflect for a moment on some of your successes that you've enjoyed, personal, professional, and sometimes it's the small successes that can make the biggest impact, so please don't discount those. The Recognition Breakfast also awarded several members of the social services community from volunteers to staff as well as board members. The award for Executive Director of the Year went to Kathy Allen of Thames River Community Service, a non-profit that provides safe housing for those experiencing homelessness, domestic violence, substance abuse or mental illness. Allen praised her team for their assistance over the years and that she was retiring after three decades of service. Being part of an agency that for 30 years has helped many young families and individuals go from homelessness on a path towards stability has been a journey that I will never forget. I believe, though, that we are only as good as the people with whom we surround ourselves. I've been very fortunate to have been part of a network of dedicated social service providers in our region. Collaborating well as we do makes all of our jobs that much easier. Collectively, the social services sector in eastern Connecticut is one of the largest employers in the region. The new London Police Department is extending its public outreach efforts with two new initiatives. It's become the first police department in the state to purchase an Apex Officer virtual reality training simulator. David Diago is a training officer with the PD and says not only will the system improve police training, but they are also inviting the public to come and try the simulator out as well to better understand what officers face on a daily basis. If we get them to focus on to why we don't have time, well, you know, it can make the difference of whether somebody goes home or not. It's a lot of pressure on one particular person, and that's just work. Now you add in that personal life, their home life, and all that other stuff. they got things going at home. So it takes a toll on a one individual human being, and we want the community to understand that we're just as human as everybody else. We just have a, a job to do. The training simulator can create any type of environment from an active shooter scenario to a mental health call. The other initiative is a Youth Citizens Police Academy program for 13 to 17-year-olds, giving them the opportunity to learn firsthand what it takes to be a new London police officer, another first in the state. Christina Nacito is one of two community resource officers with the PD and says this age group is at a point where they're starting to make decisions about their future and what they want to be. When they get into those teen years and have to make more you know, life decisions, this will hopefully give them more information and be more informed of how that process works, what it is we actually do, you know, and be able to interact with their friends about it. You know, being in junior high and high school, you know, that's, that's those times where they can be more influenced by friends and adults. So hopefully we can be that positive influence in their lives. The 10-week program will cover all aspects of police work and all attendees need their parents' and guardians' permission to take part. 
And Eastern Connecticut State University held its first in-person community Thanksgiving meal since the beginning of the COVID pandemic almost three years ago. Around 500 local residents and community members enjoyed a traditional Thanksgiving meal served up by university students and staff at the campus dining hall as part of their day of giving. Lana O'Connor is from Eastern's Centre of Community Engagement who organised the annual event and said it's great to be back in person. Everybody really loves this event in person. It's more meaningful. We get to see the people of Willimantic and the happy faces and especially our student volunteers. We have close to 30 today that are helping all of the guests with food and clearing tables, but they also get to greet and talk with and share stories. So that personal connection we were missing the last couple of years. This year, Easton provided transport for their guests, bringing them in from several different locations in the town and the surrounding area. Michelle Doucette of Willimantic was one of the guests at Easton's Thanksgiving lunch and was pleased to be there. It is just so blessed that everybody could be here today for a wonderful, wonderful meal. And yeah, it was just, and I saw a few people I haven't seen in a long time, so... It was wonderful. The food was great, the services fine, and it was wonderful. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 